Hello, this is Earl Fontenelle, and you're listening to the Schwepp, the secret history of Western esotericism podcast online at schwepp.net. And today we're speaking with Juan Acevedo, a researcher in ancient languages, comparative religion, and currently working on early modern history of science at the University of Lisbon in Portugal. Juan, thank you so much for coming on the Schwepp. I've wanted to talk to you for a long time about your incredible work, and it's great to finally make it happen. Thank you so much. Thank you for the opportunity. It's great to be here in good company because I have seen that you have so many colleagues and friends and people I admire on your on your podcast. Now, we want to talk today about a thing about which you know a thing or two, alphanumeric cosmology. Alphanumeric cosmology is an idea whose time has come, and I think you are the man to explain First of all, what it is, and second of all, why should people interested in Western esotericism and Western thought more generally be interested in alphanumeric cosmology? So first of all, can you just lay out what you mean by this term in your work? What is alphanumeric cosmology? Yes, I was in need of a, of a term, of an accurate term, and when I was starting to develop this research which um, really came out as uh, the culmination of a very long interest, a very long time interest I had had, uh, in, probably since I studied, since I, I started studying uh, classical languages and, and, and Hebrew in Venezuela a long time ago. I did that with, uh, under the teaching of a, of a philosopher of language, uh, Professor Riceño Guerrero, who died a few years ago. And so I think from the very beginning, I was very, I was made or helped to be very aware of the philosophical, very deep esoteric also dimensions of the classical languages. And, you know, I sort of had this sensibility. And then when I started concretely doing the, the research work at the Warburg Institute, um, these all came to fruition in a way. And, and so it was clear that we needed a term that was, was able to convey in the shortest possible way this dual nature of, of an element which is not just a number and not just a letter, but an inextricable, an inseparable combination of the two, as it, you could say, maths and grammar fusion. And well, the word alphanumeric is a handy term that has been around doing the rounds of the technology, you know, computing and technology and maybe maths also in, a, in certain areas. And, and we just borrowed it from those other places. And it's interesting because it's a word that I have discovered is immediately accepted and understood by younger people they immediately say, oh, yes, alphanumeric, of course, it's something. But a uh, bit older scholars, they hesitate a bit. They, they had to pause for a second and, and, oh, yeah, oh, yes, and that's what you mean. <laughs> but uh, And then... And then cosmology comes cosmology. into it. Yes, exactly, yes. Put it together with cosmology, and then the whole program is already delineated in the title because it means we're going to consider the order of the universe from the perspective of dual nature, numeric and grammatically, if you want. And, of course, maybe a subtitle that is missing there is what, are, what the elements are. 
or something like that because because it goes straight and the work actually the, the originally was uh, devoted to the story of one word and that word is the greek word for element stoicheion now let's just talk about that a little bit um yeah. not not getting maybe too deeply into it but the word stoicheion which in mm-hmm. your book you you really d- dig into all the many meanings of it and also just the way the meanings change over time in Greek mm-hmm. thought. Um, it's usually translated as element. You know, mm. Euclid's elements is, you know, yes. fam- a famous example. Yes. So it can mean the basic stuff, right? Mm-hmm. Yes. Um, but it can also mean letter. Yes. And it can mm-hmm. mean some other stuff. And it's it's like this sort of thread running through your, your research, this word and yes. various kind of thematic connections to it and translated version mm-hmm. things like mm-hmm. elementum in latin yeah. tell us about this word mm, it came to my attention by uh, a little passage in timaeus in plato's dialogue uh, which your listeners know very well about um where where there is a pun about this word stoicheion timaeus is uh, complaining that some people call the elements of the world and the, the elements of nature, so they call them stoicheia, they, they call them elements. Uh, as, and they are not, when, when they are not even syllables of nature. And, and, and the pun uh, is explained because stoicheion means element and also a letter. Mm-hmm. So he was saying that they, are, they say that the elements of nature are letters uh, when they are not even syllables meaning they are compound. Right. And of course, this goes in, weaves into the argument of Timaeus, and they find some, some things that are more elemental, these uh, intellectual triangles. So we're not yeah, the, the uh, mathematical atoms exactly. or geometric atoms. But, exactly. But this wordplay really caught my attention because of the uh, insinuation that that the world is made of letters. And, and so I started reading up a bit about it, and, and I came across maybe one or two particularly important books that I think gave me the idea uh, to develop this uh, more into a history of ideas work, and also because of the connection with other languages. And what struck me really, you know, I think at the time when I read that passage, the clearest narrative of, or, of such a, a letter cosmology had been the, the Sefer Yetzirah, the little and great Hebrew treatise called Sefer Yetzirah, uh, which is, comes from a, a lot later in, in, in history, than like maybe ninth century or so. So this also struck me. So I always had related, you know, for quite a few years, I had related uh, this idea, this letter cosmology, with uh, uh, Kabbalah and, and that sort of thing, uh, very esoteric and so on, and also maybe hermetic stuff, you know, the imprecations and repetition of uh, syllables and magic. And, and then uh, when I, I found, as it were, that suddenly this also existed in Greek philosophy, this idea. So, well, I started digging a bit into it, and, and the more I dug, uh, many more things get, uh, turned up. Uh, and and the, the word itself, and 
uh, to my, I still remember a bit of a surprise. I had already studied quite a bit of Latin, but then I never realized uh, that elementum itself also meant a letter or it was like the customary word for a letter of the alphabet. So the, the concept was really pretty much everywhere coming down from uh, ancient philosophy. And it was a matter of trying to find the confirmations for this. And, and I think, well, I, that's what I try to do with this PhD research work. And, and I think to a certain extent, I, I managed to, to find key evidences here and there. So let's just think about the significance of this idea for a second. It, it seems to me, and tell me what you think of this, that there are kind of two main possible ways, or it might be helpful to think about two main possible ways to approach the relationship between language and things, first of all, before we even get into letters and numbers. Mm. A nominalist one, where language is just a ad hoc tool for describing reality, there's no real connection between words and things, and a different uh, approach, which is a bit more difficult to pin down, but it's certainly something that Plato seems concerned with figuring out how it would work, whereby mm -hmm. language, or maybe the concepts expressed through language, are mm -hmm. in some way ontologically connected with the things they describe. Yes. Is that bollocks, do you think, or is that a, a useful way of framing the question because if, if that is a useful way of framing the question we narrow down our scope of inquiry we're on the plato side right with uh alphanumeric yes. cosmologies wait yes you could say we're on plato side with steroids because, <laughs> <laughs> because when we say yes let's consider the relation between language and things and then of course the the a big a big question there for starters is well yes what aspect of language are we going to consider and then because of the very famous and centuries long discussion between nominalists and realists we immediately jump to think well it's a conceptual thing it's the concepts of language relate to reality in a certain way but language is also inevitably sound hmm. yes it's utterances and at a certain point, almost without exception, it is also written signs. So, so we can um, reformulate the question and what's the relation between language and things? What's the relation between the sounds of language and things and between the signs of language and things? And I think this, especially this acoustic dimension is very neglected in scholarship. And, you know, I have uh, over these past two years after I finished this uh, publication, I have had the opportunity to, to speak about it in a couple of places. And people uh, always generally appreciate a lot, you know, this reminder of the acoustic dimensions, because you read a lot of things on ancient philosophy of language and so on. And, and this dimension is often not so emphasized as I think should be because it was an important part of the um, most important activities of life for people. You know, Proclus wrote hymns. Yeah. Proclus had these amazing hymns that he wrote. And, and of course, he's, he's just one, but... Proclus also the, talks about, sorry to interrupt you, words, spoken words, mm -hmm, as mm -hmm. insold agalmata, yes, like exactly. actual uh, statues... <laughs> 
yes, filled with yes, gods, yes, right? Yes, yes, so, yes. You have you have you have many of these uh, ideas developed, and they are there. But for some reason, I think. Well, I I don't think it's for some reason. Um, I think it's because we are still recovering, as you know, culturally, we are still recovering for the religion bashing of the last two or three hundred years. Hmm. And it's still hard for mm, most scholars to engage in an adult way with uh, with religious matters, you know, without thinking that they're going to be, you know, promoting religion or right. oh, against it because it's not objective. So it was actually, this is partly, only partly why I also chose uh, as one, one important central part of the, the research I did was also to show how in, not only in philosophy, but also in key religious texts of the Abrahamic religions, you have this underlying understanding of the alphanumeric cosmology. And, and this means also that you have this underlying, of course, the liturgies, you see, of these religions. And so here we go back to this acoustic aspect. Of the, mm. the Even before we get to that mm -hmm. Abrahamic stuff, I'd like yep. maybe... I think we're we're sort of segueing naturally into the why should we care about alphanumeric <laughs> cosmology part of this uh, conversation. And the reason we should care is because various permutations of the idea that words stroke letters are basis of reality, stroke numbers, I should say, is very familiar. Anyone who's heard anything about Kabbalah, especially if they're not a Jew, but if they're if they they've absorbed something about Kabbalah via Christian Kabbalah, the essence of Kabbalah in this sort of understanding is this idea that the Hebrew letters have something to do with reality itself, right? If anything in, in about Kabbalah is mainstream, this is like the mainstream understanding of yes. Kabbalah, maybe yes, one yes. part of it. But the story is way, way bigger than that. So before we even get into that territory, which is mm -hmm. relatively familiar, I'd love to talk a little bit about the Greek stuff, because this stuff's yep. almost unknown to anyone. And mm -hmm. when we get to the Islamicate world and and uh, letterism, so-called uh, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. esoteric letter wisdom that we find yep. very widely uh, into the early modern period and even today, this stuff in the Islamicate context is often considered Pythagorean, right? Mm -hmm. And so Pythagoras, at least as an idea, <laughs> is is like the patron saint of this whole way of thinking. So Absolutely. let's talk a little bit about, before we even get to Plato, like going chronologically, let's talk, let's start with the Pythagoreans, because you, you talk a lot about Philolaos in your book. And you, yes, you know, yes. what's going on there? Well, I think I also started with, the, I think it's very appropriate that you said the idea of Pythagoras. Yeah, the mystique of Pythagoras. Yes, something like that. Because if, if probably if anything uh, during this research was hard to pin down was what was exactly this, this Pythagorean <laughs> uh, aspect of the, of the whole uh, alphanumeric ideas. I ended up focusing a bit more on Philolaus because he's like a very concrete example, meaning that we have text pretty much attributable to a concrete Philolaus that we can study. And that seem to embody the, the closest there is to this Pythagorean Pythagoras that was imagined later on, you know, through the centuries by so many scholars. Because 
with Pythagoras happened a bit what happened with Hermes, that, um, that they became a repository of ideas that were necessary for a certain vision of the world. And even when the uh, historical evidence may be practically uh, inexistent. Also, a problem with all the um, discourses about the Pythagor Pythagoras and the school is that a lot of the mystique or the mysticism that they get, you know, all this hype there is about the Pythagorean mysticism has to do with the, with the initiatic practices that they had. This was like an important element and people made a lot of that even in ancient times in biographies, for, uh, biographies of, of Pythagoras. You know, he was like a, a sheikh, a, a kung fu master or something like that, a yeah. lalet with all his uh, strange way of living and so on, and his asceticism. So studying the, the real numerical, arithmetic, symbolic, esoteric doctrine of Pythagoras takes a bit of clearing up, you know, or trying to separate, really. Uh, and, and this is partly also, again, why I went to Philo Laos, where we had a few fragments and very specific. But the, but the other problem is that even in ancient times, already in, in the, by the times of Aristoteles and Plato, Pythagoras was already a legend and yeah. an idea and so on. And, and this, of course, was brought, well, one of the authors, one of the key authors that I relied a lot on, though I think some people consider him a bit outdated now, was Burkert. Yeah. A big work about the Pythagoreans. And very interestingly, because he says, I think, something that has been maybe nuanced by other later authors, but I, I think it hasn't been quite refuted because it, it seems to be evident that that if you want to find uh, things that can be considered very close to our original Pythagorean doctrines, well, look into the Timaeus, look into and look into Aristoteles, funnily enough, because yeah. he conveys, you know, by way of refutation, many ideas that then passed down the centuries and people kept any, well, I don't think it's a, an irony because I don't think, uh, well, maybe I don't know, I have a, a very medieval idea of Aristoteles, maybe, but I, I don't, I don't generally would like to think that uh, Aristoteles was so opposed to these things that he often refuting in, in one way or other. But as some people would say it's an irony that many of these crazy Pythagorean doctrines came down, uh, were preserved by the Aristotelian refutations. And if we still had on the Pythagoreans by Aristotle, we'd, we'd have the gold yes. mine. Exactly, yes. But, but you know, um, I still think, after having read many, many sources, there is a little key notion we, we all have, like, because it sticks in the mind once you read about it, about the Pythagorean doctrines of number. And, and it comes straight from Aristotle. It's when he says that the, he's criticizing the Pythagoreans because they think that reality, that they are high of reality, the principles of reality are numbers. And then he says, he qualifies that. He says, well, yeah, and they consider it in this way or other. But just saying that, and, and of course, maybe you add that to the aura of initiation of the Pythagorean uh, groups, and then you get a magic recipe for getting readers through, through the ages. You know, these people read this 
and and then a good question is why why that idea might, would be so attractive that to think that reality is made of numbers that 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 sticks in your mind somehow why mm. well in your book you you speculate quite plausibly or you know you 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 i would call it i would call it educated speculation that maybe one of the things they were getting at is trying to account for the fact that the universe is intelligible in the first place and yes. that there's a structure there's an order there's a logos to mm -hmm. this world we find ourselves in mm -hmm. and therefore the best way of accounting for that or describing it i guess is through is via arithmos um mm -hmm. it, things are measurable mm -hmm. they're not just a chaos they're not just a a big smush so therefore there's number yes. right yes yes um, and the concept of logos is really fundamental and the concept of logos is directly related to number because uh, i think in in most literature speaking about that there is a tendency to only focus on the aspect of verbum yeah. logos is verbum day and principio erat verbum and so on yes yes erat verbum but they're at logos. Yeah. Uh -huh. And the original meaning of logos is more arithmetic than yeah. uh, linguistic. So it can mean an accounting, like a, yeah. like if you do a sum and you come up with yeah. the answer, it's a logos. It can mean a ratio, which is very yeah. important, I think, to if if what Plato's doing in the Timaeus is genuinely Pythagorean in some way, yeah. which it probably has some, you know, uh, ingredients of Pythagorean yes. guys that Plato mm -hmm. was hanging out with. Mm -hmm. Ratios are everything in that work, mm -hmm. right? The soul yeah. has, is made of ratios. This, the cosmos yes. is made of ratios. Mm -hmm. These are logoi. Yeah. So we have words, uh, we have arithmoi and logoi already being, th there's there's already a sem o greatly overlapping semantic spheres. Yes. And so already language and number in this early Greek material are mm -hmm. related quite yes. intimately. So we have the Philolaus fragments, we have Plato and... I think Burkert is right that whatever early Pythagoreanism was about, what everyone thinks it's about later on is to do with Plato's Timaeus. And and indeed, as you mentioned with Hermes, um, we even get the original work of Timaeus Locris, whom no one thinks yes. was a real person, written as though it's the source material for Timaeus, the speaker in Plato's dialogue, written in the proper South Italian dialect of Greek. So it seems like really this guy is a Pythagorean writing about um, the universe. And this becomes part of the Pythagorean canon, along with mm -hmm. many other things. And in this canon, mm -hmm. tell me if you think this is a fair summary. There's a lot of different speculations about the relationship between words, numbers, and by numbers, we can mean geometry as well as arithmetic. Mm -hmm. and reality but that seems to be a central theme in the whole kind of pseudo-pythagorean literature um, people like moderatus of gadis and mm -hmm. um, the neo so-called neo-pythagoreans get really into speculations about a one from which yeah. reality might come and a dyad and this sort of thing yeah. and this is all seen as being pythagorean uh, yes i think it sounds like a fair summary very important all those speculations about the decad and this understanding of numbers as, as you, you say, the, you, you have the monad, the dyad, the triad, the tetrad, and so on. In this way, until you get to the decad, yeah? 
counting from one to ten, and this understanding of the of each number from one to ten as an abstract concept, mm. which is expressed by these English words. You know, you see, instead of saying one, you say the monad. I think this is very important. It's a good pointer to to what they did. To, it has to to do a lot, I think, with, with the sort of speculation they carried on. So listeners might want to check out our episode on the so-called theology of arithmetic appended to okay. our episodes on Yamdukos, where we have a, a manual going from the monad to the decad and talking about the kind of characteristics of the yes. ar- arithmological nature of each of these um, numbers. And these, these are not numbers in the sense that three is three monads. Yes, there is a threeness. Exactly, it, it, a threeness. A threeness, and um, yes. each each number has its own ness. Yeah. Yes, you know, at some point I played with the idea. I, I fancied the idea of uh, uh, at some point developing um, this, uh, trying to explain this uh, this idea of the abstract numbers from one to ten in relation to playing cards, because when you see. Uh, Especially because there are some playing cards in in some countries. Playing cards don't have numbers; they don't have the number. It's just, let's say, if you have uh, three hearts, you just see the three hearts, and there is no number three on the card. So it means you have to see, and people play fast, you know. So they are they are used by long practice to seeing the number, and without counting, they just can't recognize a seven or a five. <laughs> It's like a sign. It's a figure, and, and right, like a hieroglyphic approach to yes, yes, number. yes, yes. And I, and I thought it had something to do, perhaps, with with one of the introductory aspects, maybe, of this decade, decade well, doctrines. I'm sure people who are interested in the tarot, which yes, is, exactly, has its origin in playing cards, will will find a lot of interesting speculations to to run off with from from what you yes, just said. Yes. So we have our Pythagorean tradition. I put Pythagorean in quotation marks, not mm-hmm. to say that it isn't a real tradition. It is, and it's very long. It goes all the way through the Middle Ages and into at least early modernity, if not till, I think it it does in, in the West go till right now. Let's forget about what it has to do with Pythagoras himself, but it's a, a living tradition of, I would maybe say, arithmological speculation. Um, mm-hmm. And we've we've talked a little bit in episode 47 about what we might mean by arithmological. Now, what I'd love to ask you about briefly is something we've we've covered already in the podcast in our interview with Bing Hallam on magic squares, but is yes. probably bears covering again is the kind of consciousness you have if you live in a culture where letters are numbers. Letters are actually used to do mathematics, right? Yes. Because this I think gives a very different approach both to written language and to number than than you have, say, in modern English, where you just have numerals that have nothing to do with letters. Yes, yes. Uh, Yes, our our use of letters for for numerals have been reduced to Roman numerals, like in the the preface of a book and so on. This is... Partly, you know, trying to get into this uh, mind frame was maybe that brought me to this concept that uh, I felt it was like perhaps the most important takeaway of the book or the the most unexpected find, historically speaking, in the book. 
is what I started calling at some point the, the alphanumeric age, because it became very clear that for a long time in history, but at a time that has a beginning and an end, most cultures around the Mediterranean were using mixed systems. I can't remember there is a technical term for that. So alpha uh, alphabetic numerals. Yeah. What is the beginning and the end? To, yes, so we can the, get a nice historical yeah. anchor point. Yeah. The beginning is approximately the 6th century BC. So that seems to be actually a, a bit clearer from the archaeological evidence and tied to some flourishing of uh, Asia Minor um, city-states and so on, and the development of the Greek language also. And um, pretty certainly with some uh, Egyptian influence, yeah. And then that would take it back. But I don't think we have at the moment um, historical evidence for, for, for taking that back in time. But in any case, from the point of view of the Mediterranean cultures that developed, you know, in the wake of the Greek flourishing and so on of culture, 6th century BC is more or less the time. And, and then the closing of it is a lot more vague because, because it came like in several waves. And these were the waves of the very gradual and haphazard adoption of the Indo-Arabic numerals by the Mediterranean cultures. So the Arabs started using Indo-Arabic numerals, and then at some point they were transferred to Europe in, in pockets here and there, you know. In a, so I used as, a, as an end date for this process uh, the publication of a very emblematic book uh, by Fibonacci. He published a book, which was a very practical guide just to teach how to learn these numerals for practical commercial purposes, counting and so on. Yeah. And plain business. But really before his time for at least, I think we have evidence and, and well, the person who has studied this in a lot of detail is Charles Burnett, of course, at the War Book, unearthing very, uh, every little mention or usage there is of this <laughs> of these uh, early Indo-Arabic numerals in Europe. And I think we have evidence from as early maybe as the 10th or 9th century, uh, already in some parts of Europe. I can remember maybe, you know, even in Sicily or... I'm always amazed because every now and then I come across a, a, an article or a source where they say, oh, yes, and Fulan and so-and-so was using this very early on in some place in Europe. But it was an isolated thing. Right. So, yeah, for historical purposes, I thought it made sense also for other reasons that I hint at in the book at the, you know, late 13th century or, yeah. So, century in general. brilliant. Now, what's fascinating, one of the fascinating things you bring out in your book is that um, because the Indo-Arabic numerals, that's zero through 10 for, you know, non-specialists. That's just the, when it, when you think of a number, that's the, these are the numbers we use nowadays, right? Mm-hmm. Um, because they are ostensibly superior in every way, in terms of doing calculations, you can do place value calculations, you know, that my, my yes, kids yes. are learning in school right now. You can um, keep accounts. You yes, can yes. do modern physics. You can yes, yes. do the, the computer. The power of the positional. Yeah. 
So it's mm-hmm. it's just a better system from a utilitarian point of view. But mm-hmm. it didn't just take over like a better system in theory should. Like the second people see it, they go, whoa, this is way better than what we've been doing. In fact, the alphanumeric approach had this incredible longevity. And so that brings us mm-hmm. back to... Yeah. The mindset, the way of approaching yeah. number and language. Yeah. 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 So I'd love it if you could talk a bit about that now that we have our historical mm-hmm. broad strokes framework in place. Yes, this was a very speculative thing towards the end, you know, where I thought having in a way tried to go on deep into the sources in, for the foundations of, of this uh, this idea. And, and I, I, I had the impression that, or I speculated about what it might have meant to have this kind of system from from the point of view of civiliz- of entire civilizations and i often remembered an anecdote given to me by um, an israeli friend telling her a bit about my research so, and so on and she told me well you know we still have these some people there are specialized yeshivas uh, the jewish schools uh, in Israel and in other places where they are specialized in uh, gematria, among other things, of course. But it's in some places they have these specialties, which means that they are able to see each and every word immediately as the number it corresponds to. Because if each letter is a number, you just add you know, the, the most common way of uh, calculating the numerical value of a word is just adding up the letters. So she told me it was very impressive to see because they didn't have to start counting at some point or or adding up, oh, wait, 10 plus five, yes, oh yeah, this is 15. No, no, no. They see the words and they see the number and they see the letter at the same time. Just like with the playing cards. Just like with the playing cards. Yes. Yeah, so, so you know, this made me think uh, about this in the context of an entire culture. And think of Greece, you know, where, where it is very clear that they use this system for a long stretch. You know, at least I think you can say solid maybe 10 centuries of uninterrupted usage for advanced mathematics, for everyday mathematics, commercial stuff and for writing all sorts of literature and everything. So what does that to the mind of a people? Uh, how do you see mathematics? How do you see writing also? Yes, yeah, so, so that's also why I wanted partly to draw attention to this. There is an alphanumeric age that came to an end. You know, it existed for a long time. So it's probably on us <laughs> to do further research and try to, or at least, you know, to be aware of this. And I think this is probably the main uh, one practical usage of this book I want to have is to raise an awareness, you know, that when we should, we should be aware that when certain philosophical or even all sorts of scientific ideas were being developed in the high Middle Ages and early Middle Ages, they were all in this context, in this alphanumeric cosmological context. Mm. So mm. when you think of um, Victorian English occultists in the Hermetic Order of the Golden Dawn being taught mm-hmm. about this Christian Kabbalah and being told, mm-hmm. whenever you see a word, you need to calculate the gematria yeah. value of it. Mm-hmm. And they're going around and it's really hard work. And they're going, oh my God, like, okay, I got to add this up. What does that correspond to? The reason it's such hard work is because they're they're doing it as like a little, as a kind of hobby 
in a context that has long since abandoned that way of approaching language and number. And they're having, yeah. having to really twist their minds to this way of thinking. But there are yeah. other cultural contexts in which it's natural. Yes, yes, very much so. Yeah, I think that's an important uh, observation. Yes. Um, mm-hmm. Now, we have our alphanumeric age, but I'd love to talk with you about at what point or at what sort of milestones, like textual milestones maybe, this becomes a alphanumeric and cosmological age, right? Because we have in in uh, episode 47, we talked about isopsephi, for example, in Greek, in elegant Greek poetry, yeah. where you kind of make little numerical puns um, yeah. and stuff like this. That's one thing. And that's obviously... Yeah an example of this kind of alphanumeric thinking, but it doesn't say anything about the structure of the universe or Mm. uh, the nature of God's creation, right? But then Mm. within seemingly all the Abrahamic religions, we have a very Mm. strong, often quite esoteric approach to God's creation, which is very much in terms of the spoken word of God on the one hand, right? Mm -hmm. Both in the Hebrew scriptures and also in the Quran, Mm-hmm. And also the letters themselves being somehow used by God in in yes. the creation. So milestones. Yeah. The, I mean, obviously, the first milestone, I guess, is the Hebrew Scriptures, right? Which. Yes, I was going to say uh, it's as if my my impression, you know, it's as if there is this underlying canvas of of worldview of 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 a vision of the universe, which is which has that, which has an, an order which uh, consists of elements that are at the same time sounds and numbers and letters. So you have this basic canvas there, and, and I like to, or I think I tend to see it as if then you have flourishings, uh, blooms, you know, uh, in different cultures, and you could say through some unfathomable inspirations and interventions and revelations, you know, you, you get these efflorescences of the same concept. And, and then you would have the Hebrew scriptures. And then you have, well, uh, maybe the hermetic revelations or some parts of the hermetic text of the hermetic can be considered to be like that, and then certainly uh, the other two Abrahamic faiths. And, and especially interestingly, that the, the texts where this is prominent is cosmogonic texts. Mm. And this is why I dwelt a lot on, on Genesis and on, the, on a few verses of, of, of Genesis and, and of the Hebrew, Hebrew scriptures. Uh, which have parallels later on, because because the, if, if if the world was created through word, it was created through letters, which means all the all the aspects of the letters uh, we 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 are considering, right? Sound and, and number, and also form, like the actual form of letters on the written page, yes, often comes yes. into our sources in the 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 Christian text. On the mysteries of the letters, which we shall cover yes. in the podcast, it talks about the shapes of letters in that Fascinating. in that yeah. given cultural context. Because obviously, the shapes of Greek letters change radically yes. over over the ages, but that doesn't seem to matter yes. to this uh, yes. revealed text. And yes. 
they express hidden truths about reality. Yes, yes. You know, I was just today, I came across an article which remind me of an important source I, I found for this work. And it is this very old Phoenician myth about the creation of the letters. Tell me more. Yes, this is the, the story of San Juniaton. I don't even, I'm not even very sure how would you pronounce that in, in English. There is this old account, I think it's Plutarch and a few other people uh, who mentioned this, San Juniaton. Um, so it was a deity uh, that um, copied models. I think it was um, snakes or some sort of snake-like figures in the sky. And then they, they copied them to the earth and, and, and the letters came out of that. I can't remember the details now, but the, the myth is about this relation between signs, shapes in heaven that relate to some shapes on earth which resemble snakes in their nature. And then uh, I remember one of the passages that talks about this says, yes, of course, that's why language is dangerous, because the letters are poisonous like snakes. Oh, um, I love that. <laughs> so so what you see there is, is you know, this uh, like a cosmogonic, cosmological foundation for this graphic aspect of the world. And, and so today, actually, I was very fascinated because I found an article that does citing some past Chinese passages with exactly the same import. And it has to do, of course, with the qua, the, the hexagrams and the three grams of the I Ching. And so how they came from heaven to earth. And there is a sort of reflection. And, and when that would be and how that would be the beginning of um, writing signs. And does it have the same kind of double edged sword aspect to it? Because Not I'm sure I'm reminded not. of the story of the Egyptian god Thoth yes. in Plato, as told by yes, Plato, yes. where yes, yes. Uh, in the Phaedrus, yeah. is it in the Phaedrus? I think it's in the Phaedrus, where, where Thoth brings mankind written language, yes. the letters, uh, yes. but it's a bit of a disaster because they yes, start to yes, lose I their remember. memories. They, they it It's a technology that kind of debases language, which is fundamentally understood as the spoken word. Yes, yes. So it is a definitely a double-edged sword for Plato. I, I remember having heard the, the myth of uh, that some uh, very inspired uh, inventor came to, the, to Pharaoh and said, listen, I brought this marvelous invention, the alphabet, and let me show you. So he shows, and then the, and the Pharaoh said, yes, it's wonderful. And then he asks his guards, take him away and kill him immediately and destroy everything he brought. <laughs> mm. Reminds me of the, the Islamicate world's reaction to printing, where mm. Europe was like, we have this new technology. We are the boss now. We have the printing press, movable mm -hmm. type. Let's go. And the Islamicate world looked at that and said, no, thank you. We, have, so much. we have a supreme calligraphic tradition. Yes. We have the written word in its best form, the best developed form. We don't want your debased, mass-produced stuff. Mechan and mechanic stuff. The, uh, the mechanics won, as they tend to do, but uh, 
that's the next stage of, you know, we've already lost the battle to keep things oral. We've, we're all in the alphabetic world at this stage, mm. right? In early modern Islamicate Ottoman Empire and stuff like that. But at least you can kind of hew to the old ways of the, the handwritten word. Juan, yes. I would love to talk a little bit about the Sefer Yetzirah. Because that's an amazing milestone, I think, definitely in the history of Western esotericism, mm -hmm. giving rise as it does to such a efflorescence of alphanumeric cosmological thinking, which still survives today in Judaism. It's, it's indeed, um, sometimes maybe, it is, this stuff is esoteric within Jewish circles, but it's also mainstream. It's mainstream mm -hmm. esoteric. It's, it's central to yes. what uh, certain types of Jews are, are yes. doing. Um, tell us about the Sefer Yetzirah in, a, in an introductory way. It is, um, it was very, it felt that a bit personal to write about it because I had been reading that little book for such a long time. I remember I was studying Hebrew at the University of Venezuela and we read Biblical Hebrew. But then with a friend, with a very dear friend, we shared some more uh, funny interests. So we got together and said, let's read this. <laughs> so we started very recklessly, you know, <laughs> from, a, from a traditional point of view, very recklessly, we started reading together this little book. And um, I remember we scribbled so many commentaries on the margins and et cetera of the editions. So um, when I came to write a chapter about that for this uh, alphanumeric work, I felt a bit uh, difficult how to characterize the Sefer Yetzirah, only to start speaking about it. And, and for a series of reasons, I ended up with this image, which I think it's a beautiful image, but also very accurate. And I think in the Sefer Yetzirah, it's like a very a many faceted gem, like one of these diamonds, you know, on a, that have many facets. And one of the reasons it can be characterized so is that you see how it has refracted light, the light of the knowledge it transmits in so many ways for so many audiences uh, during the centuries uh, and keeps doing that, actually, as you say. So the Sefer Yetzirah basically uh, tells us about a creation, uh, or, and more specifically, it is called a formation, and it is called... A word is used that means making, like very like what an artist or like what a craftsman does with wood. And so it tells us of the making of a universe using a system that has 10 and 22 elements. And the first 10 elements are called something like numbers or a, a strange word, sefirot which which is an odd word in Hebrew. We'll have a lot to say about the sefirot in yes, the, yes. the podcast. Yes, yes. I think at some point I, I started using numerations just, just to, to try to convey what, what they did with the, when they, with the creation of this word. Uh, so there are these 10 numerations, the sefirot, and 22 letters. And so with this, and, and the Sefer Yetzirah, very plainly, it's a very short book. It explains how the creator, the artisan, made the universe using these 10 and 22. 
And yes, pretty much there, there's very little development really. It's just saying he made it with 10 signs. With the first sign he did this, with the second this. It almost like a, reads almost like a list. And of course it has, partly because of this, it, it's very cryptic or very condensed, it has uh, elicited so much commentary over the over the centuries. Mm, by you, among others. Seem, uh, seemingly among you others. could you and your friends couldn't resist a midrashic approach to this yes, exactly, text, right? Yes. It requires commentary. Let's go. Yeah, well no, we were criticizing the translator really. <laughs> okay. Well that that in itself, you know. Yes, um, yes. marginal notes, criti- variant readings, this is all part of the midrashic tradition. Yeah. Um, so we have Sefer Yetzirah, which strikes me as maybe the most seminal and the most firmly alphanumeric creation story in the Western tradition. Like the, the Genesis account, the, the Quranic account, the opening of the Gospel of John, these can all be interpreted through alphanumeric lens, right? And have yes. been. Yes. But yeah. in but the Sefer Yetzirah, you can't... explicitly. Yeah, it's, there's no other way to interpret it. Like, whatever it's about, it's about numbers and letters. Hebrew, yes. The Hebrew letters, the 22 Hebrew letters, and this yeah. mysterious 10, which... Yeah. Um, uh, yeah. <laughs> and this goes on to become a very powerful interpretive key to be applied to the Torah, right? Reading mm-hmm. it. Um, yes. But also goes on to uh, inspire a whole extra canonical uh, Kabbalah, a tradition, um, yes. um, the the sort of unwritten oral wisdom. It's interesting that yeah. um, in tracing the development of Kabbalah, which is, which presents itself as oral wisdom, right? This, so this is the mm. stuff Moses didn't write down, but God transmitted mm-hmm. it to him and yeah. he kept it oral. Um, mm-hmm. Seemingly this approach comes from a written text mm. to some degree anyway. Or at least yeah. takes some inspiration from this. I also text. found I also found very curious, you know, that it is usually associated with um, creative magic, not necessarily with apotropaic magic or talismanic that kind of thing, but with um, I can't remember if that's the term you would use, creative, uh, like productive, well, you know. Well, what do you mean? But yeah, what I mean is best exemplified by a very funny story. I think I mentioned briefly in the book, it's about two rabbis that gathered every Friday to study the Sefer Yetzirah in the afternoon. And then at the end of the afternoon, of course, the Shabbat is coming with the magic that they were studying through the Sefer Yetzirah, they produced a calf and then they they ate it. (laughs) They cooked. (laughs) So they, they... they created their meal basically hmm. uh, every every week when they met to study Sefer Yetzirah, and and I had and I know there are other instances I, I can't remember specific examples, but of the Sefer Yetzirah being um, particularly important for that kind of creation, and also like you know bringing things to life, like sort of the and this is where the Golem story, of course, comes. Hmm partly from, and similar things, the, the creation of little men and bringing them to life. And, and you know, this goes back to this notion that, that the creation, any sort of creation, like if you're creating a universe or if you're creating a little man or a calf that you're going to eat, you need 
alphanumeric elements. Hmm. So, so just as you could say, as the demiurge in the Timaeus or as the Abrahamic God uses words to create and with their alphanumeric elements, then the magician replicates this, the, the, this kind of Sefer Yetzirah style uh, magician. Hmm. You see, these stories uh, are a funny and, of course, the um, thaumaturgic, the, the showy side of the business. Yeah. But, of course, I, I think the real message there, which was a lot clearer for people in previous centuries, uh, the real message is you are recreating the world all the time and your microcosm and your micro and your microcosm you are recreating them all the time through the power of your words and this is why prayer is you know practically based directly on this kind of cosmology it's yeah. about a re permanent recreation through ritual yeah it's it's striking to me that this seems really like a basic human instinct or at least a human instinct among humans who have language, because presumably we had ancestors who, who couldn't, you know, very, very distant ancestors who couldn't really speak at all, much less write. But there's a phenomenon, you know, people who absolutely don't believe in God, like proper atheist materialists, if they get in real, real trouble, they find themselves praying, you know, going, oh my God, please let my, my kids be all right, or please, like, you know, like someone's gambling, please let me throw a seven, let me throw some, come on, seven, seven, seven. Like, and, and you can think of a ton of other examples of this. What's going on there? You know, why on earth would someone who, who totally doesn't believe that anyone's listening, mm -hmm. why are they throwing words out into the universe in the hope that that will influence events, right? Mm -hmm. And the same thing, obviously, with all manner of, uh, what you might call magical practitioners on on from from every from the whole huge sphere of magic mm -hmm. what's considered magic very large amount of it has to do with words mm -hmm. um, not all but a lot of it yeah. does and it's words of power you know if you mm -hmm. say this this will happen as maybe one mm -hmm. of the reasons why it's impossible to to separate prayer from magic in a kind of satisfying way that scholars will consider a real distinction because in both cases, yes. you're, you're saying something in the hope that it will happen. Yes, and actually, you know, from this angle of the alphanumeric uh, cosmology, you see a bit more clearly how oh, it's not so much a, a matter of uh, hope that it will happen, but the, it's a technology, if you want. And this is why also you can see how, you know, if, if we come to think of people who, who, who like to say they don't believe in anything, um, they will still believe that if they key certain numbers in certain machine, things happen. Or, or that if they make, they take some measurements, which are then, uh, you know, converted into numbers, and they manipulate these numbers, things will happen in a certain way, and then a, 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 a rocket will land in a distant uh, satellite. Yeah. <laughs> because they were able to manipulate reality through the use of numbers and through the use of elements, which are funnily enough represented by letters. <laughs> so, so this, because the alphanumeric cosmology is inseparable from the idea of um, a rationally understandable cosmos. Mm. And so, 
there is a sort of range, you know, um, we could think perhaps of the alphanumeric cosmology as having a big range, a broad range of uh, a spectrum, yes, with, with one end being perhaps very religious and the other end being very scientific and technological and verifiable. Uh, and then maybe magic is somewhere there in between. <laughs> well, I think if we were, depending on your definition of magic, if we were to take the definitions of magic that were put forward in the high Middle Ages by Albertus Magnus and um, mm -hmm. Thomas Aquinas, yes. um, which we'll be covering in the podcast when the time comes, all of modern applied science from your car mm -hmm. to your computer would be, would be magic, uh, natural yes, magic. Yes. Totally fine, yeah. not dealing with demons. Yeah. Totally fine for Christians mm -hmm. to do, but clearly magic, exploiting the cult, the occult properties of matter, and God knows what they would have made of modern mathematical physics. Because, and this is bringing us into the early modern history of science, which is where you're working now. So I'd love to hear your your thoughts about this. One thing that's that's really struck me in trying to get my head around the 17th century so-called scientific revolution is that. You know, Newton and Leibniz being two very prominent proponents of the new science in that period, both of whom, like Pythagoras in a way, have, have come to sort of dominate the cultural memory of what was going on in this time, which was much more complicated than mm -hmm. Newton and Leibniz. But both of them were absolutely fascinated by numbers. Um, mm -hmm. Leibniz was pioneer of, of studying the I Ching, like this yes. sort of Chinese stuff that was just coming out of China through uh, Jesuits who were there. Newton mm -hmm. was obsessed with trying to interpret the Book of Revelations numerically yes. to figure out when the world was going to end, yes, yes, um, etc., etc. Newton and Leibniz were both very interested in the project of trying to find a true language, mm -hmm. philosophical language, which would perfectly express the nature of reality through... Yes probably something numerical. I mean, in, in Leibniz's thinking about this, it, it's something like a calculus of reality yeah. in the form yes. of a language. And he wouldn't have got any funding from an institution. Well, that's the thing. Um, <laughs> Newton, with his theory of gravitation, was accused by his scientific colleagues of hmm. reintroducing magic into what we should not be talking we should not be talking about action at a distance and you should not be trying to explain the universe through your fancy mathematical calculations because the universe is not mathematics it's little billiard balls bumping into each other at random um, and this whole approach is going back to this dead esoteric way of thinking that we have no time for what's interesting is that it turns out newton is right in very very significant ways and that the universe is best understood Mathematically, if you're trying to if you're trying to postulate laws, if you're trying to predict things yeah. such that you can put a rocket on the moon, yeah. later it turns out maybe Newton is not quite right. Einstein comes along and so on. But the fact is, you can put a rocket on the moon just using Newton. You don't need Einstein, exactly at all, right? Mm -hmm. So, in this aspect of Western culture, the rise of the new science, um, mm -hmm. the natural philosophy, 17th century natural philosophy. You have this very complex discourse where there are leading lights who are trying to put aside all that stuff by which they mean everything from Hebrew Kabbalah to um, sometimes they just mean religion altogether. If they're hardcore atheists, there were some at the time, people like Hobbes, mm -hmm. put all that behind us so we can make progress. And that, that idea that we're making progress has mm -hmm. gone from strength to strength till now we mm -hmm. live in a world where everyone thinks we're 
in this, this kind of progress. But the progress from Kepler to Newton to Leibniz to so many, um, well, Tesla, <laughs> um, is made through this older way of thinking, which to me seems to partake of the alphanumeric way of thinking to some degree. Mm-hmm. Discuss. Uh, uh, no, without question. Yes, yes. I also think, uh, you know, uh, this was one thing um, uh, I had very early on in my research. I have to decide to to put an end to it somewhere historically, you know, in the usual with these long works. And, and I remember at the very beginning, and the, the research which the research was called uh, blah 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 from Plato to Agrippa. <laughs> but then I think it took less than three or four months, and then we realized no, 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 this is too much. Let's cut it short. And and actually, then I think partly at some point I realized there is a really nice wrap-up of the story when the alphanumeric numerals stop being used in the West. You know, it really, it comes to an end. There was a, there was a nice round story there. Let's close it there. But after the 13th century, there are so many instances. So you mentioned Newton and Leibniz, but also I can think of, you know, later on to when I was finishing my work, I came to read these amazing works by Matthew Melvin Kuschke about what he likes to call letterism. Mm. Uh, you know, Hurufi, the, the, the later Arabic alphanumeric cosmology. And then the, the, the so many uses it has or the influence it had in politics and all sorts of things, uh, unexpected, unexpected sometimes. And so that's one example in, in the Ottoman world, for instance, uh, Safavid. And the same with people like Leibniz and, and later on. And, and I very much think, as you say, that you can discern this, maybe not even an influence, but just like the traces of this fundamental way of seeing the universe in many, in many examples of, of what our modern science. I have, this is why I was very happy when I found a, a work, an article by a mathematician, and this is, I think, Tegmark. Max Tegmark, that the, maybe. the, Max the Tegmark, physicist yeah. who's the very physicist. prominent in positing that the underlying nature of reality is, in some sense, mathematical. So here is a person, you know, who has been brought up in, uh, you know, hard sciences, what we call now hard sciences, and, you know, he, he doesn't hesitate to explain why we can understand this, this is a fundamental thing of, of reality, this Pythagorean, basically. <laughs> in the sense of, again, not maybe to do with Pythagoras at all, but in the sense of this huge, long playing out of a tradition that we put yes, under the, yes. the, the aegis of Pythagoras as its patron. Yes, yes, and mm. in the in the very particular sense of the principles of reality being something we can call numbers. Juan Acevedo, stay esoteric. <laughs>